The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our extra special guest is Richard Schutz, a gambling expert, if there ever was one. And we're going to ask him about the potential for sports wagering in California, which is becoming a pretty big deal this year. Not as big as the coronavirus, but it's still a pretty big deal. You're welcome. And, and listen, before we even get started, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't suggest that um, whatever is said on this podcast today, nothing is more important than the statement that I want everybody out there to be very safe right now. These are really curious and uncharted waters that we're sailing through. And, I, and as you mentioned, sure. in a nice way, I've been around for a long time, so I'm old. And and nothing that we talk about today will be as important as people to stay safe and, and, and take care of the most important thing, and that's the the health and, and welfare of, of themselves and anybody they're involved in with regards to the pandemic that's now gripping the globe. You know, uh, absolutely. And before we started the podcast, we were just chatting, and uh, the I guess the, the March Madness is off this year. Uh, oh, right. And, and I mean, I, I think there's a, just a, a number of things. It's major announcements with regards to anything where people congregate, be them NASCAR races and pro basketball and, and baseball and just everything, concerts, Broadway, you know, things that would be huge stories yeah. are just yet one of many bullet points over the last few days. And these are big stories. I mean, circling back to the gaming community, these are big stories for the gaming community, right? Because these are the focal points of, of wagering. Uh, across the country, I would think, or at least certainly in Atlantic City and in Las Vegas and in several states. So does that still ha- I mean, what happens then? That's a lot of lost revenue, it, it seems to me. On Well, well I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, and gambling is hugely impacted by this. First of all, in a lot of your tourist just destinations, and you remember that Vegas gets right now about 56 million tourist visits a year, that's really going to be cut back. And I was just looking at Hope Vegas hotel room rates this morning and, and the bottom's falling out. I have heard, and this was on Twitter, and I don't know that it's been verified, that they may be closing down the Mirage. All the buffets in Las Vegas are closing down. And even when you look at, at your places, I mean, not only is the absence of the ability to bet on, on sports significant but this is going to affect everything and if you look at a poker room and you have a a big poker component in that state you are sitting side by side with people throwing chips into a pot that are then being shoved to a different person you you know and they're handling cards and the next time they're going to be handling the cards that someone else handled You you know these are probably not ideal environments to hang out in during a pandemic of which um the disease has spread like it's spread, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, I flew yesterday and they're talking about this whole thing of social distancing. Well, a poker game is not social distancing. And, and plus you can't, every time you touch a chip or every time you just touch a card, you can't use, go, go run and wash your hands. So this is going to have dramatic implications on both the, the tribal casinos in the state across all 
different game types and the poker rooms. Do you think this um, might encourage online gaming in a way that it hasn't before in California? That go, not being face to face or close to people as you as you uh, gamble, but being able to go online and post your bets with your Visa or your Mastercard or something. Is there a is there an upside to that? Well, I mean, look, you know, Europe has been doing this for a long time. Uh, Europe and the United Kingdom, you know, they are. I always mention that I always go to the the ice show in London, and I just returned from that in, in February, and uh, they have embraced the distribution of gambling products over the internet for a long time, whereas the U.S. hasn't. Now that leaves you with a different industry. You, you probably don't end up with Las Vegas and these incredible resorts and shows and stuff in an internet environment. Uh-huh. Um, one has to understand that there's, you know, it's an it's an efficient way to do it, but there's also certain concerns, and we're just learning about some of the problem gambling issues um, that, that may be delivered. I mean, you have people now, and and you know them, and I may even be one of these people that's addicted to their phone, you know. And now when you're delivering gambling products across that phone, that can reduce, that can enhance the potential addictive behaviors. And, and I mean, even in my own personal story, you know, you know, I quit drinking 20 years ago. And, and one of the things I didn't do is keep a bottle of booze in my car or at home. You know, I mean, the expression was, if you, if you go to a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. But imagine <laughs> problem with, with with gambling, but they can't give up their phone. And and remember, that phone can send you notifications. They can use artificial intelligence to determine that you haven't made a bet in a while. And they can reach out and grab you, and they can find out things that you like. And and so I I think that there are dangers. I I was just appointed to the advisory board of the National Council of Problem Gambling, and this is a an, an issue that isn't being addressed a lot, but this is one of the many dimensions of it. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. There's also different employment implications. I mean, if you look at the tribal casinos, for instance, and, and even the card rooms, they employ a lot of people. Now, will those people still be employed or will they, <laughs> will they be in, employed in some foreign country and, and, or, you know, and there's just a few servers in your state? So, so all of this is totally relevant in that discussion and it's a complicated discussion you know i was when i was on the commission i was um the governor's um the consultant to the governor's office on internet gambling and i was also um the senate geo committees under senator wright their consultant too which was always funny because i thought i could not only be helping writing a bill but i could be helped writing the <laughs> veto message of it you know but, but one of the issues was, and I had that position because in the land of the blind, the one that man is king, and, and I had a gambling background, and one of the real shortcomings of the state of California is they don't have anybody in government that has much of an understanding in, in, um, in gambling, you know, be it Internet or uh, brick and mortar. Do you, the, um, uh, the tribes, uh, 18 uh, Native American tribes are jointly circulating a, petition to put a gaming measure on the ballot in November that would allow sports wagering, authorized sports wagering at racetracks and casinos, but specifically rules out online. It would, it would be physical gaming at the casinos and the horse track, but not going through the internet. Is that 
something you've come across before in other states, or is this something unique to California? What does this, I guess, tell us about the politics of sports wagering in California? And let me back up one one moment here and, and make the point, is I am a consultant now, and by way of disclosure, I um, do not have any tribal clients in the state, nor do I have any card room clients. I do not have any, you know, I just have not, nor have I been paid by anybody in the state of California. And since the, the time that I can recall that I uh, left the commission, so I do, and I think it's important um, to disclose those type of things because, because you had a hearing recently, which uh, Senator Dodd and and um, and uh, Adam Gray were heading up with regards to sports betting. And I mean, one of the faults I found with that was having seven men, I believe, testify. Kind of indicated that <laughs> you know there are women that can also speak to these issues, and, and um, you know the probability of them being picked without bias of, of seven minutes is ludicrous, I think. Now, they have a rival, uh, they have rival, a, a rival constitutional amendment, ACA 16, and the, the uh, tribes are on a different track. I think originally they were sort of together on this, but the tribes split off and did their own thing, and now um, Gray and Dodd are doing their own thing. Is there, have you had a chance to look at these? pieces of yeah. legis- proposed legislation, the ballot, proposed ballot initiative in the ACA, are they fundamentally different in some way? Well, I, I think the big debate's going to be the card rooms. There's no secret that there's been a lot of tension between the card rooms and the tribes yeah. sometimes now. You know, um, some time ago there was a fundamental change in the way the law regarding the uh, how the deal had to be rotated and whatnot, done by Bob Lytle, who was was a head regulator right before he retired. He wrote a memo to two of people in the card room industry and then then left government service and went to work for the card room industry. And a few years back, he was thrown out of the industry and and, uh, for a number of misbehaviors and and, and and has signed an agreement never to enter the agreement, but but there's just and, and that's kind of started a lot of the friction between the two entities because the card rooms, I mean the tribal casinos, have very much felt that they are offering games in a style that is one illegal and 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 totally inappropriate. So there's been a lot of tension about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and anybody that's been in California around the gambling scene clearly knows and understands that. The, the but, you know, I mean, what the tribes are saying is is that it's going to be a gambling is going to be allowed on the sports betting, but it's going to be a retail model where you have to go into the casino. And and this model is being employed. It's not tribal. It's the way there are casinos in the state of um, uh, Mississippi, and um, you you can make sports wagers at those casinos within the property and um but you can't and i and i believe it's ring fenced there's a geo fencing that's done with the technology i think you can even be in a parking lot as long as you're on the footprint of the casino property or in a hotel room or something you don't actually need to go up to the counter and and that's how it's done in mississippi and that's going to be how it's done when i i used to be oversee the largest book in las vegas and that's how it's done 
And there are advantages to that, to the casino operator, and the advantages are that, one, you drive traffic to your property, two, it's a revenue source, uh, three, um, by that driving of traffic to your property, they end up in some of your other gambling verticals. You know, they may play blackjack or poker or whatever. They may bring their wife or their husband along. Uh, they're going to use the food outlets. And, and so it, there's a benefit to that. And, and I oversaw, and if you know anything about the history of Las Vegas, the Stardust book was a legendary book. Uh, the Stardust was the property featured in the movie Casino. And, and after those guys, the bad guys were run out, I was moved in with another guy to take that over, and I oversaw the sports book there during that time. And, and it was a, an amazingly... It, it was just a legendary book. We had 11 payphones on the outside wall, and they were the purport, purported to be the 11 highest-grossing payphones <laughs> in the world. Um, were, was a character in Casino uh, representing you? Was he supposed to be depicting no, you? No, wasn't the show was, wasn't was Don the Rickles? That came later. <laughs> okay. Is, hey, let me ask you one thing. Is the um, market uh, that is estimated, that consultants have estimated, the size of the market in California uh, in, for sports wagering. There are several estimates out there. Chris Grove, who was at one of our conferences, as you were a while back on uh, gaming, he's, he estimates about $2.1 billion. And it seems to me over time, there have always been big estimates about the, mar- the size of the market in gaming, and it, it doesn't really, as you get into it, it might not be that big. Do you think it really would be a big market sports wagering of California got into it? Um, Chris Grove is a, is a very good friend of mine, and I respect him as much as anybody in the business. But but I would argue, and I haven't, you know, penciled this out much myself. Um, I, I have not l- looked at that, but the general tendency of estimates is to bend to overstate. <laughs> you uh, you yeah. know, if they're yeah. wrong, they're, they're wrong high, generally. And, and there may be a number of... Uh, it depends on the nature of the law. If you have internet gambling where it's accessible to everybody, you know, on your phone, you can be at work and, and, and make a bet or you get a notification that a team that you want to follow or bet on is playing and your your phone dings, you can make a bet, which is different than you have to have to actually go to the physical location. So, you know, how you build those models is contingent upon what the reality on the ground is. And so you have to build in a bunch of assumptions and, and constructing those. It, it would be a, a big market. I mean, there's just no question, you know, and, and <laughs> you and I would like to own it, <laughs> but, um, which is part of the beef because it's yeah. who, who's going to control it. And, you know, I think the tribes have a couple issues, I, I think. And, and I've been critical of the regulation in the state and, and, and in saying that, um, I, I am not critical of the regulators per se. I, I, I think they've just been failed by the legislation that's uh, surrounded gaming in the state, and I think they've been failed currently by the existing legislators. Um, but and, and we can talk about that later if you want. But um, and, and, and so that's a concern. You know, I mean, you have had more money laundering raids on the card room sector in the state of California than any other class of gambling in, in the world and so i think the tribes are saying <laughs> look oh wow really these guys have have had some problems and, and, and whatnot so is there any state um that you can think of that would serve as a model for california is there 
let's say we should be looking to if we do create sports wagering in California? Well, they're all a little different. Um, I mean, if you look at New Jersey, New Jersey's a funny model because you have Atlantic City, and I used to work there many years ago for Mr. Wynn. But all the casinos are in, in Atlantic City, and, and Atlantic City is a very small town. It's a very, you know, it was a very impoverished town, and that's why they legalized it there. Um, and, and so they subsequently, and I have legalized gambling on the Internet there and sports wagering, and, uh, and they get tremendous traffic over the Internet. Now, one, the Atlantic City model was, to build their casinos where no one was, you know, and it, and it used to be they'd get substantial traffic from Philadelphia along the Atlantic City Expressway, but that's no longer true because now you don't need to leave Philadelphia if you want to gamble, you know, because Pennsylvania's legalized. So it, that's one model you can look at, but it's a curious model because where the casinos are, there aren't any people. And, and so it's been, you, you know, the growth of sports wagering has been pretty rapid there. Plus, I'm sure a phenomenal number of people crossed the bridge from New York. <laughs> you know, I mean, you just have to believe that. Mm-hmm. And you also have to understand in that model, they don't allow betting on their college teams. Um, and, and so that's something you have to take into account, um, which would be, you know, it's, it's when I was, Senator Wright, when I was it with the state, there was a meeting about sports betting. This is before it was legalized, and I think... Both Stanford and, and Cal sent up representatives and said, we do not want sports betting on our college teams in this state. And if you understand the state and the importance of both Stanford and uh, University of California, that sucked the oxygen out of the room. You uh, know? I mean, yeah. That was not a fight that anybody in that room was willing to have with the colleges. So it depends on whether you allow college betting and, and, and pro betting. And I understand the positions of the college. Understanding the underlying principle is that one of the motivations or the talking points has always been well the, it's it's not that you're you know, allowing sports betting is happening and it's happening in an underground environment and um that the police basically are ignoring uh, and um and and this brings it above board and it allows the state to generate some tax revenues and and um and it allows it to be operated in a more transparent environment and all of that. So there's just a whole bunch of different pieces to this debate. The other thing is, though, that I think the tribes have a strong desire to protect their position. You know, no one cared what the tribes thought when they didn't have any money. Uh-huh. Because in politics today, that seems to be what goes on, you, you know. and when especially the richer tribes were able to start making political contributions and, and you know that got that got them a voice in politics because no one cared before they had money basically and um and and so the tribes with the most money have the best locations and if you think they want to surrender their advantage of a good location to somebody that can be delivering you, you know a, a tribe with maybe you know, 12 slot machines, you know, if they do a deal with Yahoo or Google or someone, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's going to take away that advantage. So, I mean, there's just a lot of dimensions to this whole debate. If, if you live in a state 
that doesn't have sports wagering like we do here in California. And and you can can you place a bet in a state that has an online presence, even though you live in California. Now that'd be against the law. That's against the law. So that would be, right. I would and think. They have a company called, well, they do what's known as geofencing. Uh-huh. And um, it's to the to the property lines. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to one of the executives from one of the big companies because I, I had written an article about some of the performance problems they were having in the, early on in the Pennsylvania experience. And I was up in Pennsylvania over the Christmas break, and I was playing, and I took a, my girlfriend and I went down to New York from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to see a play and, and to spend a few days in the post-Christmas day period. And, as, and I played poker on my phone on the way down, and, and on the way back, I was in the state, but I kept getting kicked off, and it's frustrating when you're playing and you've got a good hand. You know, and that they were just working on some of the bugs of the system. But no, your geofence, these geofencing technology systems can, can define it within a very within about five meters you know and um and and you can't bet across state lines now there's offshore books you know and these are located in places like costa rica and 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 a whole bunch of different places some of the islands in the caribbean and these are not legal per se but but a lot of people bet on those do you have a sense of what the illegal market is coming out of california i mean there are people in california who are probably are betting on sports outcomes does there any estimate how much money is is actually being generated that way well to to say that there are people in california betting on sports outcomes is what my priest used to call a bfo which is a brilliant flash at the obvious yeah (laughs) and and and, uh and 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 i have heard all kinds of, of evidence and we went through this um back um during the, the iGaming period and the iPoker period, you, you know, which you and I lived through, and I think you had some conferences on, of which I participated, and there were all kinds of estimates there. Some out of, I think, at Berkeley produced some, and, and then different interested parties produced some. Uh, I don't know what those numbers are, you know, but the, yeah, there's a huge betting market in California. And again, back in 1960, I think there were 250,000 arrests for booking in the United States, and, and now there's very few, and most of those are derivative investigations, which means there was something else going on, and in the charging process, they loaded on sports betting, but oftentimes the bigger issue was money laundering. Uh, you know, Richard, when, um, when people go to you and want consulting, uh, want your consulting expertise, what are the questions clients are asking now? Is there a common thread to them, or is it all over the map, or is it sports wagering or something else? Or? Well, I, I, you know, I've been, I, I have a little bit of a, a different background because I spent 30 years in operations, including be a, being a CEO of a Las Vegas casino, and then I went into regulation. You know, there's, there's this thing called the revolving door, and I went through it the wrong way. <laughs> you know, and I became involved in, you know, I went after the small money and got involved in regulation in California, and then I moved to become the executive director in, in, in Bermuda. Sounds a little like um, journalism, actually. <laughs> and, I, and I also spent a couple of years working on a Ph.D. dissertation on the history of the Nevada regulatory, uh, you know, the Nevada Gaming Control Board. And, and so most of my work has been, I mean, one, there's just a lot of people, I wrote an article about this, Oh, a year ago, I think, 
a little over a year ago, was called 90 Day Wonders. There's a lot of people that are running around as experts in sports betting that have never, one, worked in sports betting, two, never regulated sports betting, and, and th- that are experts. And that's just one of the things now. And there's a big rush going on to, to get into the market. And this, I think this is why all the, you get all these curious different systems. Um, but I've been spending time overseas, both in London, Malta, and other places. And, and most of what I've been speaking to people about is how do you, because I understand the U.S. regulatory system, and the U.S. regulatory system started in the state of Nevada because, you know, and they legalized gambling in 31, and they, they until 1978, they were had a monopoly on casino, legal casino gambling. Um, hmm. and, and so that, and, and Nevada was argued to have been heavily, the mob was argued to have been heavily involved in the early Las Vegas era, mm-hmm. and the regulatory agency was established to protect the state from losing that monopoly, but they had to legitimize the industry, and one of the ways they had to legitimize the industry was to get rid of the bad guys. And so one of the topics in regulation became suitability. You know, I mean, there's there's five areas of, of, that are of relevance to the regulator, and the first is suitability of all the people. The, the second is internal controls. The third is game integrity. The fourth is the verification of your tax payments. And the fifth is protection of the vulnerable. But a keystone of the, of the U.S. system is suitability. And they really do exhaustive background checks in a good, disciplined, regulatory environment like Nevada. I mean, they go through your background with a fine-tooth comb, and they do forensic audits of you to see where your money was because the way you find out if someone's done something bad is follow the money, you, you, you know. And they do. I mean, they. I mean, they take you apart. I, I when I went on the board of directors of a slot manufacturer, I had to be licensed in over a hundred jurisdictions, and I can attest to you, they look at you very, very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Europeans had a different history. They didn't have this mob background history, so their regulatory entities develop differently. So now they're coming here. They want to come to the United States, especially because they've been dealing with the Internet sales of, of betting products over the, over the Internet for many, many years. And, and the U.S. just doesn't have the experience or talent. And so these firms want to enter into relationships and partnerships and, and whatnot. But they need to understand the U.S. regulatory model, and and so what I've been doing is involved with them, and we look at we look at the people, and and if you talk to ten people that are involved in the firm, all ten of them will say I don't have any problems, and then when you get into a more of a deep dive investigation, you find that there's three that may have issues. So you need to help clean that up. You need them to understand that if they're doing anything inappropriate, like some of the internet providers for many years were kind of indifferent to borders. You know, they may have been selling gambling products in China and places where they were legally. So you have to clean them up, and and, and you have to make sure that they don't try and deceive the U.S. jurisdiction because there's nothing worse than that. I mean, if you've done something wrong, you kind of come clean and admit it and, and work through that. They need to maybe remove individuals that aren't appropriate to... You know, there's two reasons that suitability is important, and one is just the reputation 
of the industry, you know, the branding of the industry. And, and two is we found that people that have had a history of never, of, of living a clean life have a tendency to <laughs> behave like that in the future. Whereas if they have had two or three different issues that involve character, honesty, and integrity, they're probably going to have future instances of where they may have lapses with regards to character, honesty, and integrity. So, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, Richard, one, one last question. Um, do, you have any, uh, uh, do you have any thoughts about what happens this year? in California with sports wagering. We may have a ballot initiative. We may have legis- We've already got some sort of legislation. Uh, one, do you think the voters would sign off on it, or is this going to be a, another year where it makes a lot of noise, but nothing happens? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, um, you know, Twain has a wonderful quote. I was able to be able to answer the question promptly, and I did. I said I did not know. <laughs> you, you know, I don't know. I think that a lot of people, going back to 1999 and 2000, uh, when, the, when you know, uh, 1A and Proposition 5 were out there, anybody that estimates the ability of the tribes to fund and communicate in a very positive way with the populace of of of, uh, of the state of California has, if you know, if they didn't learn that from Proposition One and Five, they better. You know, you don't want to sell them short. Um, they're also going to be well funded. I mean, I mean, and all this is abstracting away from the the curious situation that we're in now. I mean. I just noticed Louisiana canceled their election so for a while, delayed them. So, you know, there's that curiosity that's out there right now. But, but you know, I think the tribes will have a good argument. I think they will be well-funded. I think that they will have excellent public relations people, and I think, that they, they, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. You know, I certainly wouldn't sell them short. And I think the state wants... Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's like you were saying earlier, um, people want to bet. They enjoy it, you know. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in Las Vegas during March Madness. And it's going to be missed this year. But, I mean, that town is just packed. And it's group guys and girls, and they're traveling over in groups, and they're betting all the games and ha- having great fun. And, yeah. and um, you know, I think it's a, a product, and I think it will generate tax revenues. It will have economic impacts that are positive, right. and it'll uh, take it away from, uh, you know, the the more curious operators that are sometimes indifferent, and, and um, you know, sometimes have one of the differences between a, a legal book and and a bookie is that a legal and the legal bookie will book on credit, you know, uh, and then you collect later, and, and I mean, that can lead to all kinds of problems, you, you know, that sometimes people that don't pay their bookie end up with knee issues, and need a surgeon, you know, um, whereas, you know, you're going to have a much more legitimate and above board environment, and, and that's important, too, for, um, for sports integrity, because one of the things when gambling's above board, you have a good data trails. You know, when I worked at the Stardust Book, we would see lines move in ways that we didn't necessarily understand. And we would pick up the phone and call the FBI, and then they could go out and look at the sporting event, you know, and, and, and 
and, and use their own sources to see if anything was going on. And when it's run by the, you know, no bookie picks up the phone and calls the FBI and says, look, there's some line moments here that are real curious, you know, and you better look into it, you know. So it, it offers a higher level of sports integrity, I think. Well, on that happy note, uh, calling the FBI, and we're all happy now. Richard Schutz, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. This is every time you say something, I learn something new. So it's great. Thank you for your time, Tim Foster. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, and, Richard. Yep. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you next time around on the podcast. Thank you.